you know, the Yankees bullpen, everyone comes out and just strikes out everybody. Every every yeah. single pitcher in the Yankees bullpen strikes out 75% of batters that they face. Look it up. This is a statistical fact. But in the Brewers bullpen, <laughs> it's Josh Hader, who's the one you can't hit. And then Corey Knable is the other one you can't hit. And outside of that, sometimes they look really good and, and other times they, they don't. So it is a good bullpen. I just think that maybe coming into the series, it was going to get a little bit overrated because sort of the the hater credit seeps into everyone else you think well this is a bullpen that has josh hater in it and therefore it's fantastic it is a good bullpen Mm. but it's not an overwhelming overpowering bullpen and the dodgers have been able to expose it unlike wade miley who they have not exposed Mm -hmm. at all i continue to not understand what we're even doing here in in the playoffs yeah so in that first game i think There were different interpretations of how Clayton Kershaw performed. I think as we watched it, we were focusing on how he was just having everyone fail him and the universe conspire against him and Yasmani Grandal have one of the worst defensive games you could imagine a catcher having and then getting benched because of it seemingly in the next game. So he certainly had a lot of things go against him in that game. On the other hand, he wasn't particularly good himself, and I think the Dodgers said that. I saw Dave Roberts' quotes to that effect about how he was just kind of hittable and didn't have a big velocity differential between his different types of pitches, which is important for him now that he doesn't throw all that hard and his command wasn't fantastic. And so it was a, a combination of both things. It was definitely stuff going wrong, but it was also Brandon Woodruff hitting a home run, which is also the weirdest thing and the most amazing thing. And I will stick a little clip on the end of this episode that is us and Grant Brisby talking in real time on our Patreon broadcast as that was happening because we couldn't believe it and it was amazing. But still, he was hittable and that was a good example of that. Although I guess Brewers starting pitchers are like three for four, maybe with a walk through this point in the series. So that's not something we all predicted coming into the series. Yeah, right. Wade Miley went two for two. Brandon Woodruff went one for two with a home run. Miley hit a double. So you look at this weekend in review, and Clayton Kershaw was not very good, and David Price was not very good, and Chris Sale was not very good, and Wade Miley threw five and two-thirds of shutout baseball. So again, just don't get it. Just don't get what is happening in the playoffs. But yeah, Kershaw was not—of course he was let down, and if not for the defense, he wouldn't have allowed maybe five runs over three innings, but he wasn't getting swings and misses, and— you know, when you finish with two strikeouts and two walks and three innings and a bunch of hits, then you didn't have a good outing. So for for people who are very defensive and territorial about protecting the Kershaw and David Price playoff narratives, I guess this was a, a big weekend for you, <laughs> if that's like a, a demographic on this podcast. But <laughs> otherwise, I, I as we've we've talked about before, I'm I I always root for the players to to defeat those narratives and I can't tell where Kershaw is because he's been so good in the playoffs for a few years now I don't know if that still exists or if it's coming back David Price is a a different story and I guess we'll talk about that a little later but yeah absolutely Kershaw was not good he was let down but I think that you and I and and some other people go into that from the perspective of we're kind of rooting for Clayton Kershaw because he deserves right better and so I think we're just kind of looking for reasons to give him more credit than the line score allows yeah, right. If we're critiquing other people for being biased and interpreting events in the wrong way and saying that Kershaw has been worse than he has, then we should be vigilant so as not to be biased ourselves because we want Kershaw to be good and we want Kershaw to shed that narrative and we think parts of that narrative are unfair, but we should still be honest about how he actually performs. And that game was a combination of his defense and him. He wasn't great either. But I think what's interesting about the Dodgers, obviously we knew coming into this series that they would be mixing and matching a whole lot, that they have this lineup that just rotates and they're constantly moving people around with the exception of Turner at third and and Machado at short. Basically, everyone just kind of revolves around during the game and you've got pinch hitters and they've got strict platoons and they're trying to maximize every advantage. And because of that, in game two, they really got bailed out by Turner's game-winning homer in the eighth because other than that, 
they would have been maybe heading into extra innings with no one left, really, except a few starters and Julio Urias, who was not really available because he hasn't pitched back-to-back days. So they had emptied the bullpen, they had emptied the bench, and that could have gotten really dicey. And it, it didn't. They got bailed out by Turner, but it was dangerous. And there's a risk to, I don't know if it's over-managing, but it's it's definitely managing aggressively and using your entire roster. And they only have, I think, 13 position players. So if they're going to do what they're doing in the series and really liberally replacing those guys, then they kind of have to be mindful of what could happen. And it, it nearly got into pretty dangerous territory. If I could go back real quick, one thing I'll point out that I only just learned. So when we were doing our Patreon simulcast, whatever we call it, our Patreon talk about boners for four hours podcast, <laughs> we I, I had mentioned in there that Clayton Kershaw threw 30 sliders and didn't get a single swing and miss in the game and can confirm mm-hmm. now it's the first game of the season where he did not get a single swing and miss on his slider. In fact, first yeah. game of the season where he didn't get at least two swings and misses on his slider. So that is mm-hmm. unusual. So anyway... Can confirm yeah. Clayton Kershaw. Not great in that start. But as for the mm-hmm. as for the second game, it was interesting to me in the uh, eighth inning, referring to the Justin Turner go-ahead, essentially game-winning home run. Hit it in the eighth inning, and uh, the Brewers went to Corey Knable to face Max Muncy after Turner's home run. Of course, Knable struck out Justin Turner to end game one. Just beat him with high fastball after high fastball after high fastball, and it was interesting. Yeah, I guess it was was maybe Ken Rosenthal wrote about how the Brewers didn't want to overexpose Dodgers hitters to their relievers, but it was interesting to see the day after the fact Brewers went right back to the same pitcher, but they did not let him face the guy that he struck out the day before. Now Corey Canable is someone who throws high fastballs, and he throws them a lot, throws them well. Turner can speak to that. And I guess they didn't want Turner to see that again. I don't know. But Jeremy Jeffress is not a high fastball guy so much. And now Justin Turner is a great all-around hitter. Doesn't strike out a whole bunch. He's just awesome. So you can't complain too much because Jeremy Jeffress is a fine reliever on his own. But you look at the pitch that Turner hit out. He was a fastball kind of inside, mid-thigh. And Corey Canable probably would have thrown a fastball a little higher than that. I don't know how it would have worked out. But still, it was... It was interesting in that I think maybe traditionally you would have seen a lot of managers specifically go to the guy who did just strike out Justin Turner the day before. And uh, no. So that's strategy, I guess. And it uh, and it backfired. Yeah. Yeah. My colleague, Michael Bauman, wrote about just the very aggressive managing on both sides in this series. And he pointed out that it seems strange that the Dodgers are giving all of these potential Max Muncy at bats to David Freeze in pursuit of the platoon advantage when Muncie was their best hitter, one of the best hitters in baseball this year. I know it's hard to trust that because he hasn't been that before, but they're going for the platoon advantage there, and I think you could make a case that even with the platoon disadvantage, Muncie might be a better hitter than Freeze's at this point in his career, although Freeze was a, a pretty good hitter this year too, and obviously he has the, the postseason history, although I don't know if that's factor into their decision making and probably shouldn't be but that is kind of curious that Max Muncy who was really the star of the Dodgers as big a reason as anyone that they're actually in this position is on the bench a lot of the time it's not actually getting in the game and getting at bats he's not a great defender so that's sort of a liability but still you would expect him to be getting more opportunities here. Yeah, you look at how well Muncie did against righties and lefties this season. Of course, he's a left-handed hitter. And you, you look at that and you think, well, he's just great. He should play every day. And what is I what I think is pretty clear is that the Dodgers have evaluated Muncie and determined, well, he's not actually that good against lefties. And this, these numbers are misleading. He mm-hmm. clearly has a lot of swing and miss in his game. He is someone who has a good idea of the strikes him, but he, he swings and misses a lot. And he was doing that, especially in the second half of, of the year when his offense was good, but not necessarily outstanding. Because it's the Dodgers, it makes me wonder if <laughs> this could be one of two things. It's either overmanaging and just playing the platoon, because again, David Freeze is a, a better defender at every position. And you'll remember that David Freeze was robbed of a heroic diving catch because of a catcher's interference call. Yes. Because can't have a <laughs> playoff game without catcher's interference. But also, you, I, I wonder, because it's the Dodgers, if they do have some sort of weird interior analytics where they've decided, well, regardless of what Max Muncy's numbers are against lefties, he's not actually 
that good against them. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but I can I can kind of buy it. He's Max Muncy's done most of his damage in lower leverage spots this year. I don't have splits on what he's done against like good pitching. Obviously, he has already hit some playoff home runs, but you know when you watch him, it feels like he whiffs a lot. Yeah, it doesn't he doesn't seem like the dominant hitter that the numbers suggest that he literally has been for like 550 plate appearances or whatever. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, but I do I am generally inclined to give the Dodgers the benefit of the doubt on stuff like this because they are so far beyond where I am with my shitty laptop. <laughs> yeah, well, that plays into a question we got from a listener, Aaron, who said, with how quickly batted ball stats and or swing rates stabilize, are we getting to the point where batter pitcher matchup stats that have some informational value are possible and you know so he's saying well usually we look and we say that so and so is you know seven for 13 against this guy so he must be good against him or he's one for 11 against him so he must be bad against him and those sorts of stats are are pretty useless over samples like that in part because the sample's so small and because you're just looking at hits. I mean, you don't know if it's a blooper or a line drive. It could be anything. You don't know if it's really predictive of what they're going to do going forward. And study after study has shown that in those sorts of samples, there's just essentially no signal there. You can look at the guys who seem to have owned a pitcher, and you can look at guys who have been owned by pitchers and separate them into two groups and look at how they do against those players going forward, and there's just nothing there. There's just no no signal. It's all noise. But Aaron is saying, well, we have more sensitive stats now. And that's true. Like back when a lot of the influential studies on this subject were done in the book by Tom Tango and MGL and Andy Dolphin, which was what, like 2005 or something was that? That was a while ago. And back then there was no pitch FX. You had no pitch type stats. You didn't even really have, you know, plate discipline stats. It was all just the basic batter pitcher matchup stuff, maybe with weighted on base average instead of batting average, but still not much better. And now there is much better data out there. And in the public sphere, there still really isn't anything, any real effort to mine that information and try to figure out if there's some meaning there. But Teams are definitely doing that. We know that lots of teams are giving their managers and their people in the dugout rundowns of, okay, here's what the projected result is of a matchup between this particular hitter and this particular pitcher. And we don't know exactly what it's based on. It's probably not based on those two players' matchups. It's based on, like, families of players. And here's how this hitter does against pitchers like this pitcher, whether it's because of how hard he throws or what pitches he throws or where he throws or how his pitches move. And they're kind of putting all this stuff into some model and generating an output, a forecast, and presumably they have tested those things and found that they actually do predict how well those pitchers and hitters will do over and above just how good they are in general. So I'm sure there's something there. It's just that there's a lot of work that goes into that, and a lot of the smart people who would be doing that for a website are now working for teams and <laughs> doing it for them. And and teams may have extra data that we don't have that they can factor into that too. So that stuff's out there. And whenever there's some strange sit or start decision that happens in the playoffs and we, with our very limited information, look and say, well, his you know single season splits don't suggest that they should have made that move or he's X for X against this pitcher and that doesn't make sense. They are probably looking at much more sophisticated information, which doesn't mean that they might not be wrong, that they might be reading too much into that. It's still possible that if you're breaking down these samples into smaller and smaller bits and you're saying like, well, this guy hits well against velocity or something, maybe, you know, now you're reducing the sample even further, but I'm guessing that they are going about that in a pretty rigorous way. Right. You do, you do wonder about teams over the data, but we've already seen like the Dodgers have Julio Urias instead of Scott Alexander on the roster because they like 
how Urias' fastball plays in the series against the Brewers instead of Alexander's, which is interesting. We have heard that uh, that the Red Sox have played Eduardo Nunez sometimes over Rafael Devers because they think that Nunez is better at hitting high velocity, which is interesting, especially right. since like the first highlight Devers had in his major league career was going deep off Araldus Chapman. But that's fine. That's anecdotal, <laughs> yeah. I guess. But I guess he's struggled more against high velocity. And when you, I guess if you wanted to, getting you back to sort of the, the listener question, you get back to, we have all this information. Can we do pitcher batter matchup stats better? Can they be more meaningful? And I guess if you're looking at one matchup in particular, then even if you have an established history between two guys, maybe maybe this hitter struck out against this pitcher like seven times in 15 plate appearances, doesn't mean that that hitter isn't going to adjust to the pitcher. You just... You can always look at what has happened, but it doesn't really account for what is going to happen because hitters and pitchers are constantly learning from one another. And even when you have one of the, an anecdote I remember hearing, I don't know if it's probably shouldn't specify teams. I don't know, but you had said that some teams are presenting their their managers with like projected results of plate appearances, which is true. Some teams are doing that. Like, let's say you mm-hmm. have looking at this line score, Pedro Baez versus Hernan Perez. Now, maybe the Dodgers don't bother generating a Hernan Perez projection because, I mean, for God's sake, there's Lorenzo Cain, Christian Yelich, Ryan Braun right after him. But anyway, that's the first player pair I looked at in this play-by-play. So we'll go with that. So let's say, I don't know if the Dodgers are doing this. They probably are. Pedro Baez, Hernan Perez. So the Dodgers would, in theory, have a readout of a projection specific to that matchup. Now, that could be based on pitchers like Baez. It could be based on specific pitch types. I don't know exactly how the teams would do it, but it's worth uh, understanding that this is the teams go into so much detail to to do that. And so that the manager can make an informed decision. Teams try to make it as simple as possible. Be like, based on this matchup, this guy might hit 300, but if you bring in this reliever, it could be 250. But a, a problem with that, and without knowing all the details of how they do this, there could be a number of problems, is that even when you're grouping like families of pitchers, so much of hitting is about picking up the ball, and you just can't account for, or I, at least I assume, teams are not accounting for deliveries and like deception and, and how the ball is coming out of a guy's hand. So, you know, maybe Pedro Baez and God, just Josh Fields. I don't know who Pedro Baez throws like whenever he's pitching. I try not to pay attention, but some similar reliever. The, the ball could look really, really different coming out of the hand, even if they throw really similar pitches. So I don't know how useful that would be. So mm-hmm. I do kind of come away feeling like what we know is you want the platoon advantage if you're on the pitching side. You want to have a right against a righty, a left against a lefty. Or even more simple than that, you want to have a good pitcher instead of a bad pitcher. That's like the first line. You want to make sure that you have a good pitcher instead of a bad pitcher. And then after that, you want to play the platoon advantage. And then th- then maybe after that, you want to do like the, the ground ball or fly ball kind of pitcher platoon split that we've talked about. But after that, I am, I believe that there is something to be mined, but I am unconvinced that it has been mined with sufficient precision and accuracy to make that much of a difference. Because at that point, you were playing real small margins. <laughs> Yeah. And the other problem traditionally with these stats is that they take into account players' entire careers. And obviously, players are not the same every year. They do things, they age, they get better, they get worse, they add pitches, whatever it is. And so you're just kind of lumping in all of this performance together as if both of these players have been static unchanging beings and that doesn't make much sense and that's another way in which we can probably do better now and I'm sure teams are doing better now in that you can get a faster sense of a player's true talent because we have now pitch level metrics and batted ball level metrics and if a hitter hits one ball extremely hard harder than he's ever hit before that can tell you something about maybe he's better now or if a pitcher throws harder or throws a new pitch then instantly you know okay maybe he's better now and I think that A.J. Hinch cited something like that when he was explaining why Charlie Morton is scheduled to start against the Red Sox even though the Red Sox have really great numbers collectively against Charlie Morton and A.J. Hinch said yeah but that was before Charlie Morton was Charlie Morton that was before he had the slider before he pitched like he does now he's a different guy so there's almost no point in comparing now you know there are probably some commonalities there his motion his delivery his release
release point. Maybe those things are similar. I haven't looked in his case, but there's clearly a lot of difference there. And so it doesn't really make sense to use those stats. But if you can adjust them and try to project how good someone is at any given moment, then it's a little more feasible. So anyway, teams are working with more information than we are, which I would say hasn't been the case always. Certainly there were times where the public analysts were ahead of the teams, and then there was a period where I think there was parity or approximate parity, and now teams are ahead in part because they've hired those people, but also because they have the technology and the data, and they got it before we did, and there's still some of it that we don't have. So you kind of have to keep that in the back of your mind. It makes me think, like, if you take Max Muncy, to go with another current example, you can look at, like, Max Muncy in his career is one for six against Giovanni Gallardo, I guess, would be one example. He's like two for eight with just weak singles against Jared Weaver. But this is a situation where, like you said, if you have a guy who just completely changed what he is in the current season, which does happen with some frequency, especially for pitchers, then you just throw that old data out. So you can understand why teams would want to move on beyond just regular pitcher-batter matchups. But boy, it gets complicated really quickly. And if you take a step back, you wonder, we can drill down and we can come up with some sort of projection for this plate appearance, but how much trust can we really have in that projection? How big are the error bars? And you can understand why managers get so defensive and protective about their gut feelings because at a certain point, it's like, what are what are, you, what are we really mathematically trying to deduce here? I'm just going to go with mm-hmm. the lefty against the lefty or the righty against the righty, etc. Right, yeah. All right, so it's hard to, to analyze two games to any great degree. I, I was just looking at MLB.com, and they have these, like, here are three things that the Dodgers could do to get an advantage, and here are three things that the Brewers could do to get an advantage. And in the Brewers article, number two is get Yelich going again. <laughs> Poor Yelich. <laughs> He didn't make an out in the second half of the season or in the NLDS, and now he goes one for eight with two walks, which is fine in the first couple games. (laughs) That happens all the time, and the key is get Yelich going again, which, I mean, I guess, sure, like, he was, you know, Bonzian, as we've said, so getting him to be Bonzian again would, would be good, but it's not like he hasn't been going he's he's been fine so that's the kind of like micro micro analysis you get into when you're analyzing a single series yeah but what if we're going to talk about small samples we can at least talk about small samples that are kind of impressive in uh, which case Mm -hmm. can we spend a few minutes talking about Alex Bregman because sure here's something that Alex Bregman has done in uh, in the playoffs this year he has batted 24 times he has five hits he has been hit by two pitches and he has drawn 10 walks. He has struck out one time. <laughs> also, by the way, he's hit a double and two home runs. 10 walks, one strikeout, two hit by pitches, two home runs, a double. And not that it really makes that much of a difference, but in, in at the end of game two, when Bregman came in against Craig Kimbrell, Bregman ended the game with a fly out to the warning track. Now, I know the warning track in Boston is like 175 feet away, so it doesn't really count. But like Alex Bregman came pretty close to at least a wall ball or if not a wall ball could have been better than a wall ball he'd nearly tie the game with a home run he got a good pitch to hit and he he just got a little bit under it but we're not really in position to say that Alex Bregman got unlucky because again he's reached base all the time that he's come up (laughs) so far in the playoffs and so I don't it's hard to pull up historical playoff records in the ways that you want to this is something we talked about the other day it's really annoying that there's not an easier way to get old playoff data but 10 walks and one strikeout even on its own let never mind the double and the two singles and the two home runs and the two hit by pitches this has been an extraordinary playoffs for Alex Bregman and uh he just seems like someone that you can't get out Mm -hmm. anymore and he's yeah. faced Chris Sale and David Price, no, although, granted, also <laughs> a relievers for, like, a lot of that time. Right. Yeah. No, he's been incredibly impressive. I mean, he is uh, – is he the, the best Astro? It's hard to pick a, a best Astro at this point because they have last year's MVP. They have 
Bregman, who's an MVP contender this year. They have Springer, who also doesn't make many outs in the postseason thus far in his career. They have Correa, who I don't know if he's fully healthy, probably not. But anyway, the the stardom goes deep on that team. But he is uh, about as intimidating as any hitter on that team right now. And uh, not a bad defender either, but he already demonstrated that last year in the World (laughs) Series. So... Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really impressive team. And so you mentioned Sale and Price. Neither one was good. Sale, we found out after the game, was dealing with evidently an undisclosed ailment that has now put him in the hospital, at least temporarily, after he disclosed it. So I assume he was pitching at, at less than full strength in that first game, which would explain his performance, possibly. But, you know, he you kind of figured that the Red Sox really need Sale to be good to go deep into this postseason because of the bullpen issues and you need him to give you innings. He is one of the very best pitchers in baseball when he is at full strength and to have him go two really good games in a playoff series plus maybe a relief appearance, that is a a huge advantage. But they didn't get that from him in the first game, and they lost. And they didn't get that from Price either in the second game, but they won because Garrett Cole was not good either, or the Red Sox batters were good. And speaking of keys to the series, I guess if get Yelich going is the key to the Brewers, then (laughs) get Betts going is the key to the Red Sox. That one was a little more legitimate in that he had had a, a larger sample of slumping, but he kind of broke out in game two and looked like Mookie Betts again. And anyway, they didn't get great starting performances, but they still split because the Astros for once didn't either in one of those games. By the way, uh, I was curious. So Alex Bregman, 10 walks in the playoffs so far. He's only played five games, but the all-time leader in walks in one playoff season, it's Barry Bonds. He drew 27. (laughs) So, you know, Alex Bregman (laughs) has a ways to go to catch Barry Bonds. Although 13 of those were intentional. This is not a Barry Bonds (laughs) podcast today. This will be a Barry Bonds podcast in the offseason. So... It was it was funny to me when David Price came out of the game. Now, for for Price, he allowed four runs, four walks, and four strikeouts, and four and two thirds innings. He was not very good. He allowed a uh, two run double to George Springer that just kind of he jammed Springer through a good pitch, and Springer somehow fought it off and hit a soft line. Are there soft line drives? This is a semantic thing. <laughs> do you believe in soft line drives? I do. I think so. Okay, well, if there is such a thing as a soft line drive, George Springer hit it, and it was a double the other way down the first baseline uh, to drive in the Astros' first two runs, and then Marwin Gonzalez hit a two-run home run off David Price for the third and fourth runs, and Gonzalez hit the crap out of the ball, but it was another pretty good pitch. Like, Price likes to throw inside fastballs sometimes, and he threw a good one to Springer. He threw a good one to Gonzalez. They just got hit. Anyway, more to the point. David Price left with the score 5-4 in the top of the fifth, and he departed to a standing ovation which was mm-hmm. not what I expected. One of <laughs> no. So this was the first David Price start in the playoffs in which his team won the game. That is, I'm not making yeah. that up. That is a, a well-known <laughs> fact. His team has won games in which he's appeared, but that's when he's come out of the bullpen in the playoffs. So mm-hmm. first team win, but of course at the time... Not only was it not a certain team win, because when David Price left, again, it was it was 5-4 Red Sox, but he left with two on and two out. And Matt Barnes came in and started throwing curveballs all the time. But David mm-hmm. Price left after a not great start, but to a standing ovation. So it, there's just no... <laughs> assuming this was not a standing ovation for Alex Cora removing David Price from the game, which would <laughs> uh-huh. be... Not even passive-aggressive, that's just mean. It just really goes to show the impact of the score, because thankfully for the Red Sox, Garrett Cole was worse, which no one expected. First time all season, Garrett Cole has allowed more than four runs in a game, and the Red Sox were able to do it, in large part because Mm -hmm. Jackie Bradley hit a ball that rolled on padding for like a second and a half too long for Mauro Gonzalez to do anything about yeah, right. So I don't think that game changes David Price's playoff legacy any, or nope. it really shouldn't. But it does, as you said, kind of it's so dependent on 
run support on whether you're winning or losing, and you, the pitcher, are responsible for only half of that equation. So it does uh, make people much more disposed to like you when your offense shows up, and and that happened here. Did you pinpoint any particular problem with Garrett Cole? Did you think he was bad or was he just making good pitches that were getting hit i mean we have not seen garrett cole not be dominant very often this season right no it's not something that you see very often and at the end of the day against a very good lineup which is the red sox lineup he had two walks five strikeouts he had a an overall okay start but you look at it and you know he allowed two runs in the first inning but a, a big part of that was because he committed an error on a ball where he should have made an out at first he was it was another one of those cases where a pitcher gets a soft tapper, and uh, Cole received a grounder in front of the mound, looked to second, threw to first, had plenty of time to get Xander Bogarts out, and he threw the ball away. Just one of those cases where you think the pitcher can never throw anywhere except home plate, which is, <laughs> it is perplexing that they continue to have so much trouble doing that. Anyway, so he committed a throwing error, and then later in the same inning, Rafael Devers hit an RBI single with the bases loaded, but that was... I mean, it's contact, right? You can never say that a pitcher did an excellent job when he allows contact because a pitcher like Garrett Cole is always trying to get a whiff. So mm-hmm. this is it's a case of, you know, put the ball in play and see what happens. But Devers kind of hit an inside out, excuse me, ground ball single the other way. It's not the kind of con- it's not like Rafael Devers got the better of Garrett Cole. He just hit the ball where the defender wasn't. So the first inning, it's not great because, you know, Cole allowed a fly ball double. He walked a guy. He allowed contact, but ultimately he struck out Ian Kinsler, did that a few times in the game. Kinsler, I'm not sure if he even knew he was playing in a game. He just, <laughs> I don't even know why he was there. He did yeah. not have a, a game to remember, but Cole in that in the first inning was better than the than the results would show. It is kind of funny if you look at the bottom of the second, just looking at the line score, the play-by-play. So it was Cole against Vasquez, Betts, and Benatendi, and uh, the, the baseball reference line score reads, Fly ball center field deep. Fly ball center field deep. Fly ball left field deep. So I don't I don't remember the inning being quite as close as it reads in the play by play, but you know could have been uh could have been worse. But it, it was the third inning where things got away from Cole a little bit, of course, and he allowed the uh, the bases loaded double to Jackie Bradley. Now maybe that would have been a two run double instead of a three run double if the ball hadn't literally rolled on top of padding for like 50 <laughs> feet cuz i don't think rafael devers is going to score from first otherwise so then you know that's just kind of really weird luck and then maybe it's a 4-4 game and and cole settled down after that so it wasn't a wasn't a dreadful start for him by any means he got his 10 whiffs out of 90 pitches he settled down but I think at the end of the day, what's important to remember, we've talked before about how the Astros and Reds, this could be, I don't have the math to prove it, but this could be like the best league championship series ever in just in terms of how good <laughs> yeah. the teams are. And mm-hmm. the Astros have a really good lineup and the Red Sox have a really good lineup. So even though I don't think Cole was at his best, I don't think Price is at his best and Chris Sale is, has some sort of stomach disease. Still, yeah. like these lineups are good enough to make really good pitchers work. And so you just can't expect the same results. The hitters are going to be worse than they normally are. And the pitchers are going to be worse than they normally are because the the level of competition in this series is just so very high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess we can talk a little bit about the starting pitcher matchups that are coming up here because the Brewers, I think, surprised some people when they went with Gonzalez in Game 1 and Wade Miley in Game 2, and they got a start from Wade Miley that I think was much better than anything they could have expected. (laughs) One of the very best starts of Wade Miley's not very distinguished career, and the upside of that is that they were able to split, and now they come back with... Chassin, who is probably their best starting pitcher. And then in game four, I guess they haven't announced officially what they're going to do, but the presumption is that they're going to do another bullpen game or use Woodruff as an opener and then follow with relievers from there. And I mentioned this in our Patreon broadcast, but when Dan Zimborski at Fangraphs ran the numbers and the probabilities for both of these series before they started, the only game in the seven in which the Brewers were favored over the Dodgers was game four, which Dan was projecting to be the bullpen game, which gives you some idea of the power of the bullpen game strategy. That's why it 
is used because it, it can be effective when you're just saying, okay, we'll use Woodruff for a few innings and then we'll use Hayter for a few innings and then Jefferson, Knable, whoever, that will project to be better than your best starting pitcher if you are the Brewers. And so in theory, they have managed the split and they have their most favorable matchups coming up in the next two games, which is good. And then as for the Red Sox, they, I guess, pulled a little bit of an audible and they are starting Nathan Ivaldi in game three because Porcello pitched out of the bullpen again in game two. So any reactions to either of those moves? I guess as we talked about before, I, I don't remember what was on a podcast and what was on our live game stream. So Apologies yeah. to anyone if I'm repeating myself, but with the the big issue with Ulysses Jassin is that he is extremely good against right-handed hitters because of his breaking ball, but against lefties, he's he's quite exploitable. He's a big platoon split kind of pitcher, one of those sort of like two-seam slider classic righties. Like he's got a he's got a reliever profile, but he's a starting pitcher. So even though he had a strong ERA during the year, the Dodgers have a lineup that where they can put in a bunch of lefties and, and make Chassin work. So I can understand a little bit of hesitation and, and pushing him back in the series. Now, this is going to be, I know in a seven-game series, it, highlighting three games and calling it, like, the key is kind of senseless because, <laughs> like, that's 42% of the series right there. But, like, the, more than, the series goes 2-3-2, two, two, right? And so more than the first and the last block of two games, this is going to be an important three games for the Brewers because they're going to rely on their bullpen so heavily and because mm-hmm. they might have a bullpen game in game four. There's a real risk of exhaustion here because, you know, relievers are apparently very soft and absent of devoid of any stamina (laughs) because relievers just can't take any sort of adversity. They're just delicate little flowers. So like you you could have Josh Hader, for example. Craig Cancel has worked really hard to not use him on back-to-back days. Well, if the Brewers are going to have a bullpen game in game four, how do you plan on using Hader? I mean, obviously, you try to go for any game that you have a chance of winning in the moment because you never want to plan that much ahead in the playoffs. You just don't have the time. But it's going to be difficult for Craig Count. I mean, maybe Chaucean goes seven strong innings. I, I doubt it. It's going to be difficult for, for Craig Cancel to be responsible with his relievers and get the matchups that he wants. It's just, this is like... I don't know. Maybe it'll all show up in game five or maybe it won't because maybe the Dodgers will miss hit some pitches or maybe the Brewers will just ride on adrenaline. But, mm-hmm. you know, the Dodgers have a, a deeper rotation so they can rely less on the relievers that they have and they have a bunch of short-term relievers and the Brewers are going to be stretched thin. So if this gets to like game six and, and game seven, the Brewers will have that day of rest for their relievers and then they can just kind of hope that adrenaline carries them through. But this is when you can start to see a little bit of the, I don't know, add, additivity. That's definitely another word. Addition, <laughs> additive, additive problems of this kind of strategy. So, yeah, that's the, what the Brewers are looking at. But again, if Jocene comes out and does what Wade Miley inexplicably did, then everything gets turned upside down. So we can't actually predict anything, but we sure can say a lot of words about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you can see the advantage of having a good starting rotation. Like, every team would prefer to have a bunch of really great starters so that they wouldn't have to do this bullpen game thing. The Brewers are doing this because they have to, because their strength is their bullpen, their weakness is the rotation, and they've taken a clear-eyed look at that, and they realize it, and they're doing what they can to maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses. If they could have gone out and traded for Jacob deGrom or someone at the deadline, or if they could have gotten a healthy Jimmy Nelson back, they would have been thrilled to do that. And that's how you become the Astros, right? The Astros have the Brewers bullpen, basically, but they also have Verlander and Cole and Keuchel and Morton and on and on and on. So that's why they're the best team in baseball. That's one of the reasons, at least. So it's not that teams have decided that they don't want good rotations or they don't care if they have good starters. It's just that it's frankly easier, it seems like, at this point to find competent relievers because you just need guys who throw hard and have one nasty pitch and they just come out an inning at a time and that works. And so you can kind of economically make up for your weakness in the starting rotation because a good top-of-the-line starter is going to cost you a lot 
in either prospect talent or money, whereas good relievers, well, sometimes they cost you. If you're the Rockies, they cost you, but sometimes you just find them out of nowhere and suddenly they're amazing. Or you can turn a starter into a reliever. Now, if if the Brewers could have, say, Josh Hader, who was a starting pitcher in the minors, and you know, there's some speculation that maybe someday he'll start again. It's hard, obviously, to change a guy's role after he just had an amazing season the way he did. But do you think the Brewers would rather have this hater who can maybe go three innings in a game and pitch in, I don't know, five or something of the seven games in the series? Or would they rather have a hater who is probably less good on an inning per inning basis but could pitch maybe more total innings or at least impact one game more than he can in the bullpen and say start two games in the series or even three or pitch out of the pen in one and start two or something do you think it, it all kind of depends on the relative performance like are you way better than you are as a starter when you're in the bullpen but would they rather have an ace hater or a relief ace hater i don't know i think it's this hater i mean he threw 81 innings this season so that just think i know it's not the way it actually worked out but think of it as like one inning every two games that's essentially what he did and one yeah. of the fun things you can do with leverage and this is like a i don't know a tango tiger trick you look at yeah so the average leverage index overall is it's set to one and when josh Hader came in the average leverage index of every plate appearance that he had the season was 1.61 which means every plate appearance was 161 times as important as the average plate appearance so take those 81 and a third innings that Hader threw, and you can actually multiply that by 1.61 to say that Josh Hader threw, you could effectively think of it as like 131 innings in terms of the significance of those innings that he threw. And he threw 131 effective innings while striking out 16 batters per nine innings. 16! And he had a like <laughs> yeah. a mid-twos ERA, and that only got worse late in the season because he had allowed a couple of home runs down the stretch. So... Josh Hader was so valuable, and look, because of Chris Sale, I don't want to pretend like we can conclude anything about a guy's delivery and therefore durability, but mm -hmm. you look at how carefully the Brewers have tried not to overuse Josh Hader, and you figure, well, maybe he just couldn't really cut it as a long-term starter. It's at least a worthwhile consideration. I don't know if he can cut it as a long-term reliever either, because maybe he'll break down, maybe he won't, but... Ultimately, you look at how valuable he was this season by any calculation, and I think given the uncertainty of Hader as a starter, then you, you take what you have. And of course, as we talk about the Brewers' bullpen, I am absolutely tickled by the fact that looking at the numbers so far, of all the teams starting rotation so far in the playoffs, the Brewers have the lowest ERA. They have allowed one run in 20.1 innings starting rotation. Five <laughs> starts, ERA of 0 0.44. I know that you all get tired of hearing us talk about how this is ridiculous and we can't predict anything, but we keep saying the same things about the Brewers over and over. Meanwhile, their starters are just going out there and blanking their opponents every time they take the mound. <laughs> yeah, I guess that includes the bullpen game when a, a reliever sort of started. But yeah, yeah point point taken. I, I've made this point elsewhere and probably on this podcast in previous years, but it's just so ridiculous that we try to analyze these games in this level of detail at this time of year. Like, can you imagine if just like on a random June weekend, we like previewed a weekend series in the depth that we do and we just like didn't explain why we were doing it we just like started talking about a, a Dodgers Brewers series on June 17th and talked about all the probables and didn't explain anything but just did that everyone would be totally mystified by why we were doing that and uh, they they should be because three individual regular season games don't mean all that much in the, the grand scheme of things usually but that's what we do at this time of year, but there's no greater utility to doing that really than there would be in June. I mean, maybe you can predict certain things about how teams behave better now than you can then, or at least we all devote more time to trying to, but this is the time of year when we do a whole podcast episode as we are now about two series and four games that have been played so far. And people are interested because we're all paying attention to these series, but you come to analysts, presumably, to hear some special 
insight into the series and unless you're really jazzed about the the matt barnes curveball thing i don't know that i hope you are because there's gonna be a post (laughs) okay well you can consume that in (laughs) in multiple forms but (laughs) otherwise you know i don't know that we're telling you anything that you couldn't figure out on your own because you can look at the rosters and you know who's on these teams and how these teams work so there's just only so much you can say so this is the time of year paradoxically when we spend so much time breaking down individual games in this level of detail and really the predictive power is much lower than it is when we talk about things in the regular season when we're generally looking at weeks or months or six months at a time i know it's stupid but here's there are two things about this i guess and uh one uh, i think people are inclined to want to believe in the significance of the playoffs and of course i'm one of them no one wants to think that this is all just a random nonsense like you Mm -hmm. all you want to think that there's some some real signal in the playoffs and at the end of the day there generally is i mean you look at the four teams remaining in the playoffs now and they're the four teams who probably should still be playing anyway so a difference between this and like a random series in in june is of course there are you don't have the same long-term considerations teams are able to put a lot more like advanced scouting prep into what their plan is like every everybody in the organization at the major league level is focused on the task at hand it is all about this series only this series this upcoming game so you have all these all these like person hours all these resources dedicated to trying to figure out the best way to beat your opponent and so then it becomes a matter of execution. Now, every game is a matter of execution. That's baseball. It's a worthless thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> You're only as good as your players perform. But if you want to believe that the playoffs are very telling, then you can say, yeah, everybody is focused on this right now. Nothing is more important than the next pitch being thrown or the next inning. But on the other hand, of course, no matter how much control, no matter how much thought and planning you put into a game, you just can't protect against somebody hit a swinging bunt and it stayed fair versus went foul somebody dropped a foul tip and the next pitch which was hit out of the park george springer fists a double down the first baseline even though the pitch was good and steve pierce is just a little too short or something for a space because mitch moreland injured his hamstring or something in the last series like you can never eliminate that sort of randomness you can never eliminate the randomness that goes into well we got this call off the plate instead of that being a ball, this time it was a strike. You can't do anything about that, which is why the playoffs are going to turn on just stupid moments sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it is at least each individual game is more meaningful. And and personally, what I enjoy about the playoffs, and it can be hard to find these things sometimes, but with teams like the Dodgers or, or the Brewers, you can identify little things, little quirks, things that they're doing where you can tell this is like... This is a strategy. This isn't just something that's happening. Look at Matt Barnes throwing 14 out of 15 pitches for curveballs. You're not. What are the odds of him doing that normally? I haven't run them, but I can tell you they're low. <laughs> that's not <laughs> something that he does by accident. So that's interesting. Even if it doesn't work out, you can at least see where the teams are thinking things. And then from that, I think you can glean some sort of internal thought processes, which is at least as interesting to me as the way that the games result. Yeah, right. And because we're all watching the same games, you can talk about these things without having to explain everything and presuppose because usually everyone's attention is is fractured and splintered and they're all watching their own team's games. Whereas now, either they've tuned out entirely or they're watching the same games that we're watching. So it's like we're all speaking the same language for once in the season. And that's nice. And And these moments do matter, and you can at least retroactively evaluate them and try to figure out, think along with the managers, say this might have been better than that, or this was weird and unpredictable, but we can still appreciate how weird and unpredictable it was. If it's a Brandon Woodruff bomb off Clayton Kershaw, (laughs) lefty-lefty reliever versus Kershaw, I mean, that's that's about the most unpredictable event you could imagine, but it was really cool. And the fact that we realize how improbable it was just makes it even more fun and exciting so you can't ever predict that but you can appreciate it after the fact yeah and by the way somewhat related to this i did recently have an a little epiphany so looking at the first two games of the nlcs i guess the first two games of the dodgers brewers series went uh four hours and two minutes and Mm -hmm. then the next one went gosh what is this three hours and 32 minutes and then in the alcs game one went four hours and three minutes take that game one of Brewers-Dodgers, <laughs> and then the next game went three hours and 45 minutes. These games 
or nine inning games. That's entirely too long for a nine inning game. A nine inning game should be three hours, or if we're going to be picky, a nine inning game should be an hour and a half. But whatever, <laughs> that's baby steps. But the epiphany that I had, if you look at any time any writer or any sort of journalist on, on Twitter complains about the pace of the game or the length of a game, writers generally, the people who are talking about that, they have responsibilities. They have to write about the game, but they're not emotionally invested. Whereas you don't have so many casual fans watching even like a playoff game, right? You've got mostly Red Sox and mostly Astros fans who are watching the ALCS or mostly Dodgers and mostly Brewers fans watching the NLCS because baseball is a regional sport and it's not like a a casual everyone tunes in kind of sport like football. Then if you always have fans, fans are less likely to complain about the pacing, especially in the playoffs because you're just so nervous the entire time. Whereas if you're a writer, you are, you're dispassionate. You're more removed. Even if the game is interesting, you're still like, oh my God, this is really dragging now like Mm -hmm. game one of the alcs was a total slog i don't care if it was close until the ninth inning that was just bad baseball but i i've realized talking about pacing as a writer you can it's easy to come off as one of the baseball grumps that we always complain about which i am i Mm -hmm. understand and i'm sensitive to but there is a disconnect because someone like uh yourself or myself will watch this and think oh wow this is a really slow game i wish it would go faster whereas if you're a fan of the team you're like i just need some time to breathe because this is extremely intense and uncomfortable because craig kimbrell isn't getting strikeouts like he usually does so that is a a modest epiphany that i have had over the course of the last this conversation yeah craig kimbrell (laughs) speaking of yeah it's kind of heart attack it's like I mean, I, as long as they keep giving him three runs to work with, I guess it'll probably work out okay. But <laughs> if he has to come into a one-run game at some point soon, you can't feel all that confident with how he's pitching right now. I don't I don't know whether he is uh, pitching to the scoreboard or something here, and he's just using the buffer that the Red Sox are giving him, but he has not looked sharp, and it has been scary each of these last couple times he's pitched. So that's no, I, uh, I can kind of a you. concern. Looking at Kimbrell, like, all the samples are small here. He's only made three playoff appearances this season. But like you think of Craig Kimbrell, and his whole game plan is high fastball, low breaking ball. And he hasn't been throwing high fastballs. He's been trying. Don't get me wrong. He's been trying to throw high fastballs to a lot of guys. And they've been they've just ended up like at the belt or below, which is not where Craig Kimbrell wants his fastballs to go. So his like average fastball height in the playoffs is lower than during the regular season by like four or five inches which Hmm. hold your fingers out as i'm saying this you're a listener with fingers probably (laughs) at least on Uh one of your hands estimate Uh that distance and like put that in a strike zone box in front of you and think of what that means as a hitter you can't get on top of a pitch if it's like at your belly button unless you're evan gaddis or jose altuve but if if you lower that ball all of a sudden it's easier to hit if you have hitters who are maybe laying off the breaking ball because kimberl hasn't been controlling that very well during the playoffs and you can see how he could be a little more vulnerable. What it means, eh, probably nothing, but it's something that has happened for three games in a row. He gave up the home run to Aaron Judge. He almost gave up the grand slam to Gary Sanchez, and he tried to give up the game-tying home run to Alex Bregman. Not good. Not mm-hmm. not comfortable viewing. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I saw that Dave Roberts said that if game two had gone long enough, we talked about how it, it could have gone into extras and they had no players left, basically. Roberts said that Max Muncy would have been his emergency catcher. Oh, <laughs> no. He's never caught in the majors or the minors. And uh, and game four starter Rich Hill would have pitched in extras. So we could have gotten the Rich Hill-Max Muncy battery <laughs> and... I am mad that we were deprived of that. <laughs> I'm mad too, although I'm also... Well, no, we were simulcasting game one. Never mind. Game two could have gone for yeah. as long as it wanted. I don't right. want to simulcast yeah. that game, but I do want to see it happen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just last thing, I, I think we mentioned the the probable pitchers in the, the Brewers' side of things. I think in the Red Sox' side of things, as mentioned also, the game three starter will be Evaldi, and then Porcello will be pushed back to game four, and... Even though nominally the two best Red Sox starters have already pitched in this series, I think in this particular series, and given sale being diminished at this point, I think maybe their best two starters are still to come here. I mean, the Astros destroy left-handed pitching. They are still fine against right-handed pitching because they're the Astros, but they're less amazing 
And so Evaldi has been really good. He has like a one-something ERA since the start of September. He's kind of been a different pitcher this year, as you wrote about back when he was traded or before he was traded. He throws really hard. He's right-handed. He's tough on right-handed hitters. So I think that Evaldi Keuchel might actually be a matchup that favors Boston. It's, I mean... Based on the starters alone, it's it's pretty close. This is not Cy Young Keuchel right now, and Evaldi is is better than he's been before. So, and Morton, I don't know. There's a I guess a little more of an error bar around Morton because he hasn't pitched a whole lot lately, and Porcello's looked pretty good. So anyway, I think Boston is uh, still probably not quite as good a team as the Astros, although it's very close, but. I think they are perhaps having their, their best two starters for this particular series coming up here in the next couple of games. So let's let's use your analysis you ran last year, Keuchel against the Dodgers, and Keuchel is a guy who works out of the zone. The Dodgers were a team that is disciplined. So let's take Mookie Betts, one of the most disciplined hitters in baseball. Let's say that Mookie Betts faces Dallas Keuchel three times the game. I'm going to ask you to predict three plate appearances. How many times <laughs> do you think Mookie, Mookie Betts reaches against Dallas Keuchel? Two? Yes, that was the number I was going to say. The correct <laughs> answer is probably one, but I'm going with two, and you're also going with two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so I guess we will leave it there. We talked quite a while, despite talking about how we don't have that much to talk about. <laughs> so uh, we'll wait for some more baseball to be played, and then we will talk again. Yeah, and in other baseball news today, um, well, nothing. So perfect. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Okay. All right, so since Jeff and I spoke, the Brewers have taken a 2-1 lead on the Dodgers thanks to a 4-0 win behind Julius Chessine and the bullpen. As usual, we are going to have to talk about Orlando Arcia on an upcoming episode, Unlikely Offensive Star. As promised last week, the podcast is now available on Spotify, so you can find every episode there if you're so inclined. You can also support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have recently done so, Mike Moriarty, Ian Duria, Timothy O'Toole, Nathan Valentine, and John Norton. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and elsewhere. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. And as I indicated I would, I'm now going to play a little clip, a little piece from our Friday Patreon-only broadcast. Again, this is the moment when Brandon Woodruff hit his home run, which Grant Brisby kind of called, jokingly. You'll hear what I mean. And if you sign up on Patreon at the $10 level or above, you will get an invite to the next Patreon-only broadcast, which will be happening sometime soon. So enjoy, and we will talk to you a little later this week. Unlike you, I can't really drink and write. I'm just not capable of it. Yeah. Oh, me, I, me neither. No, that's that's something that definitely never happens with me. By the way, Brandon Woodruff is batting. The Brewers are allowing <laughs> Brandon Woodruff to beat up. So, yeah. fun. How about that? I guess there's a, a, a limit to, I don't know. I mean, you can't, can you do two innings of a starter every game in a seven-game series and then go inning by inning with relievers too? Uh, that seems that, like a lot. That's tricky. I guess they've decided that they can't right Oh, now. Andy's a lefty batting. So he's a righty pitcher, but he's a lefty batter against the lefty Kershaw. So. But, I mean, you have to sell out on the swing, right? Like, if you're Woodruff, you have to just go for it right here. <sighs> Come on. So, Grant, you uh, weren't present for the very beginning. Just so you know, Ben and I are presumably several pitches behind you because we are uh, streaming, and so we had to sync up. So we are... This is so we, you know, we are watching yeah. the third pitch. We just oh, this saw. Is amazing. Yeah, we just saw. Oh, the, he's the over. Oh, 
Yeah. He's riding first. So you're in the future. He's riding except Woodruff. He's going for the... Oh, they, they're inside the park. Right? I could do that? <laughs> yeah. All right, I definitely won't do that. Oh, it is happening. There he goes. <laughs> There's probably someone even farther behind. I will behind. say that uh, when you get to Holy the... Holy shit! Uh, <laughs> Woodruff puts on on exactly one more excellent swing than you thought he would in this at bat. I will spoil that much for you guys. Whoa. Whoa, no. (laughs) (laughs) Did did it actually happen? Are we Oh there my it is, God. gentlemen. Brandon <laughs> fucking Woodruff. Just... Look at him. Ah! Look at this guy around the bases. Oh, that was a beefy big boy swing. I'm sorry for spoiling it. But... Wow. That was like, that was one of the greatest post moments I've ever had. I shared it with people. Oh, my God. Uh, 101 miles per hour off the bat. Oh, out to straightaway center. 81 listeners got to... I, I, I did not give that a chance to go out until I saw the outfielders. That's like my favorite thing. We see the outfielders going, yeah, fuck. Like, that is, that is perfect. <laughs> oh, wow. 